Ultimate Conversations with Matt Dwyer. Yeah, it's me, Matt Dwyer. Who else is it going to be? Thank you very much for listening. If you're a first-time listener, I really thank you for being here. Uh, It means a great deal for me, for you to be trying out this podcast. If you're a long-time listener, I I appreciate you coming back for more and more. It really means a lot to me. Um, And if you're an old-time listener... Uh, You might be noticing that this is a different song than I usually use for my theme music. That's because this is Prisoner by Harmar Superstar from the album Bye Bye 17. And uh, Sean Tillman, a.k.a. Harmar Superstar, is my guest today. And it's a really great episode. Um, If you're a fan of music and listening to musicians talk about their lives and struggles and whatnot, I've interviewed a ton of musicians in the past. Last week was David Pajo from Slint and Papa M. I've had Wayne Kramer from the MC5, John Lurie, uh, Rodney Anonymous from the MC5, the list, or Rodney Anonymous from the Dead Milkman. Uh, Though he's a fan of the MC5, and we talked about that, and he was disappointed on my, he was disappointed that Wayne Kramer now does jazz. Uh, I, on the other hand, am not, because I really like jazz, and I've had several jazz legends on the show. So if you enjoy that other, I've also talked to a lot of artists and uh, authors and whatnot. So peruse my 181 episodes and check out some more if you like. Um, this is a really great episode. I've known Sean, Sean Tillman and I have kind of known each other. He was always around the comedy scene. Our mutual friend Jonah Ray, we're both really good friends with Jonah Ray, and that's how I met um, Sean. And as I talk about in the episode, he was kind of a, like when I lived in Echo Park in Los Angeles, he was a uh, sort of an epic uh, fellow. He was he was legendary before I knew his music or met him. Then I heard his music with Sean Anna, and I really f- fell in love with his music. And then Harmar Superstar, also just uh, incredible music. And we talk about his whole journey, and we talk about what it's like to be in Minneapolis right now with uh, the mayhem um, that is going on and how he's helping and doing his part to heal the city, which is great. So uh, please enjoy this episode of uh, Sean Tillman, a.k.a. Harmar Superstar. What kind of dog did you get? Uh, We got a little uh, Yorkie named Figgy. Oh, I saw pictures of Yorkie, uh, Figgy. That's right. Yeah, yeah, we we adopted him kind of towards the beginning of the the pandemic was it to save him because i know there was a lot of people calling to uh save save the dogs during the pandemic um i don't know if it was like that dire we we've just been kind of you know we were looking at at pet finder a lot um kind of tindering animals i guess (laughs) (laughs) but uh but uh we we, i i had this this kind of vision of uh getting a, a dachshund and naming it legs and and um and so we kept our eyes out for that and then just like the searches just kept expanding and then we found this little guy who just looked so cute and he's potty trained and four pounds and i don't know it was just like full-grown guy that we had to, we had to immediately look into and once we once we did it was there's was no turning back kind of thing my my second dog was super chill when we looked at him, and then he got to my house, and he just 
lost his fucking mind. And I was like, oh, this is not what we signed up. <laughs> oh, no. Like, like just was a wild, a wild child sort he's, of thing. He or? still is. Like, it's like he's on speed most of the time. But <laughs> there's nothing, you, you know, it's like... I was like, I made the commitment. I'm not going to be a dick and be like, see you later. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Ours is, ours is weird. I mean, he's, he's very chill. I don't know what he went through before. We still like haven't gotten a lot of information because it was kind of a, a quick turnaround. Um, well not quick, but it was kind of just not much info exchange. We kind of had like a, a couple um, FaceTime sessions with the foster mom and, and then, uh, you know, a walkthrough on FaceTime with the, the, uh, adoption agency. And then one day they were just, they just called and asked if we wanted to pick him up in an hour. And we, we were caught so off guard. We were just like, ah, we don't really have any dog stuff. So we need to like figure that out first. And then maybe tomorrow sort of, <laughs> pick up this thing and it was still kind of winter. So we had to stand outside because it was still social distancing, uh, to the extreme. Um, and yeah, so everything was just kind of weird. We didn't really get time to ask many questions. And all of a sudden there was this little creature in our house. <laughs> um, did they look at what you do at all or anything? Did she like see that you were, uh, that you were Harmar superstar or did that not enter into the, I, that didn't really enter the conversation. It was, it was sort of a suburban, uh, adoption agency. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I don't know, you know, I, I wonder what that would have, if that would have made any, any, any difference at all. <laughs> it's just, it's, we don't, Oh, sorry. We don't like, we don't like your music and we don't think this dog will be a fit with you. It's just, it's <laughs> weird. Cause I feel like just from articles I was reading with you, I feel like a lot of people have these weird preconceived notions about you. Cause I noticed like a lot of the questions are, uh, uh, yeah, it's it was really weird to me because I've never read articles about you because I've always yeah. and it's like uh, there's a lot of sexual questions and I was like it's, yeah <clears throat> I think at first um, I don't know people were either playing into the persona with me or just sort of like um, misguidedly going with it sort of thing because I don't know there was just like this whole first wave of press especially when I first started getting like popular in the UK and had already been doing stuff in the U S for a couple of years. Um, I, I noticed that, you know, people assumed that I was like the six foot tall giant, <laughs> like wild maniac. And I was just like, I it just, the, the persona literally became bigger than life, you know, in, in a way, like people just thought I was twice as big and, and just this disgusting, freak. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, I mean, you know, I, th there's certain things that I can't blame people for. Cause I thought it was funny to play up certain angles of that, but it was, it was never like something that I, I planned on following me for so long, but, uh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it, it was definitely a thing for a while. You that know? never got, cause I know some people like, uh, a friend of mine knew Hunter S Thompson and he was like, it was a persona and then he bought into it. And that was kind of like, Sort of his demise, I guess, is that he started thinking he had to be this larger-than-life drug crazy. Yeah, I definitely. I mean that that sort of that that sort of thing kind of did happen with me in my actual life when you know when the the fake confidence became real confidence and and you know the fake kind of uh, party lover boy persona became 
something people expected out of me. It was definitely detrimental in ways of like, you know, drugs always being available and all that kind of stuff. And just being like, well, I guess this is what people want. So (laughs) 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 then sort of stepping back at one point being like, Oh, I could just not do that. And, uh, and kind of just, you know, grow with, with, uh, some sort of, uh, integrity, I think, you know, and, and, uh, start writing, start writing music. That's not just based around, um, getting wild. But I think that that was also the allure because Harmar was kind of a, a vacation from Shanana, which was another project I had, which was kind of more, um, uh, I guess, quote, unquote serious uh songwriting that i would have that i had but just as you know a, a younger man in my 20s the 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 issues that i was dealing with were much more like kind of mean-spirited in a way and kind of just uh uh definitely more like petty so i had that that side that was kind of serious and weird uh, weirdly I don't know, I'm not mean, but something, something in that neighborhood. And so Harmar was just like, a, you know, just, just letting off steam and being, and having no like need for substance, which I think was, was great at first. But then once I kind of dropped the, the alter ego sort of situation, it, it merged into one and it, it became easier to kind of write from a, a more organic place where it's not just sort of playing up one one kind of persona you know yeah i saw one of the quotes i saw from you was that was really interesting to me is how that you sort of grew you said something i'm paraphrasing but like growing into the pain that it takes to sing soul which i thought was a really interesting statement. well yeah i think yeah life experience had a lot to do with it you know obviously i think every five to ten years you kind of look at yourself and, and you go, Oh man, I thought I knew so much five years ago, <laughs> five days with me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then it just keeps happening. You're like, you think you've plateaued and like, you can't learn anymore. And then all of a sudden you're like, Oh fuck, there's a new can of worms around every, every corner, you know, is that, do you think that it has anything to do with, uh, longevity? Because you've been, at it for a while and i would say you're to at least from where i sit your your success continues to grow where i think a lot of people sort of i don't know maybe they don't have that introspection or that element that so they sort of don't keep challenged or keep uh, well i i think a lot of it has to do with the fact that i never blew up as fast as a lot of my friends or kind of you know peers did you know uh, so I think, you know, a lot of people had the, like, the explosion of popularity that everybody's jealous of at first, you know, and then that can be a thing, that can be a double-edged sword where, you know, your second album or third album is kind of um, got all these expectations on it and you can never really get there. And, um, And I think just sort of chugging along the way I did, which was sort of, kind of being a, a musician's musician and the guy that a lot of people like wanted to see that were in bands and bring on tour that the audience a lot of the time wasn't getting quite the same way. Um, and then kind of proving myself along the way and having little bits of a success and then lots of failures, um, and sort of 
conditioning myself to be used to the the wheel going around and around and up and down failures not seeming as like like the end of the world as they did at first and um you know all that stuff kind of makes you realize that there's just there's more coming if you just sort of wait it out you know i don't think i don't think it's necessarily over uh at all the times it seemed like it was something else kind of would always appear, you know? So it was, it was, uh, it was definitely, um, uh, I feel like I got a lot of wisdom from, from all that, like failure that seemed like the end of the world, you know? And, and yeah, it just, uh, it just now it doesn't really phase me anymore. Can you, what were some of those failures that were sort of just, or is that not something you want Oh, to- no. I mean, I guess, you know, there's, there's certain, there's certain phases. I think, um, I think, I think a, a, a major one was, uh, after I, I had an album called you can feel me that was, um, really popular in, in the, in the UK for sure. And that brought me to living in London for a year. And I was like, the first live performer to have an, a residency in Ibiza and people didn't even really know what that meant. Like I was coming, I wasn't DJing and I was going to sing songs, you know, and, um, and, uh, and it was kind of a wild thing. And I had all this success and I was moving back to the States and I moved to LA and, uh, immediately bought a house, um, when I was starting to make the, the handler record and and it was everything was just set up and it seemed like i would pay off this thing in like a year and you know what i mean it really did it was like oh wow i just okay well i you know i bought a place for 450 and i made hundred fifty thousand dollars this year so if i just work for three years i'll pay this house you know what i mean like stupid 25 year old logic where you just don't think about life happening and uh and uh so Immediately, I got asked to be on Celebrity Big Brother in the UK, which is at that point definitely like the biggest TV event you could do. And I said no, and you know, I turned down an amount of money that would have paid off like half of my house at this time. But I just didn't want to become like a one-note joke sort of thing. I, I was just really afraid of that. At this point, I think it's like less of a less of a thing than it was, but I think, I don't know, you remember that, like maybe like around 2004, if you were doing reality TV, it was like, you're done sort of thing. You know, you, you, you know, you just sort of like, you just can't, you can't come back from that. So I, I said at that point, so I said no, and my label dropped me. Um, and just like in the middle of promoting this album, like, um, I had another video made from the, for the second single and they just literally just, it was done. And so all of a sudden I'm broke and I have kind of no prospects of making money because it was right about the same time where the record industry tanked and became like kind of, you know, um, Napster (laughs) or whatever, whatever was the, the thing that kind of like toppled um, everything into streaming and, uh, it was just like insane. You know, I just thought I would never make money again in my life and was stuck with like these, you know, this $3,000 a month mortgage sort of thing. And, and just had no idea, uh, what to do. And it was like super depressing for a year or two. And, you know, you just obviously bounced back. I kind of like played to my strengths and figured out that like, you know, maybe I can, 
uh, use my talents and knowledge to, you know, write a script and sell that and kind of, you know what I mean? I just, I figured out how to wheel and deal more and kind of, um, uh, like diversify into, into a bunch of different art forms. And, and, um, I don't know, it just, it just, uh, I, I just wasn't ready to go back, um, to working a job. Like, you know what I mean? (laughs) Believe me, I fucking knew. (laughs) You know? And, 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 and I think at that point too, I mean, you were there, um, in LA, it it was almost, and maybe this is just me building it up in my head, but, but it it seemed almost like shameful failure in LA at that point to like, go get a job. It, 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 you know what I mean? If you'd already been working in the arts for a while, I feel like, and I, I, I do think a lot of this was in my own head and something I probably should have gotten like therapy for. And, but, uh, but I just thought like, you know, there's no way I'm ever going to get another chance at being an artist. If I back down right now and somebody sees me doing a totally normal job that everybody needs to do, <laughs> you know? And it's like, and so I just kind of lived in this unknowing kind of constant, stress of hoping that a royalty would show up or I would get some sort of break, you know? And, and the the older I got, the less I cared about any of that. And and the more I realized nobody else gave a shit the whole time, you know? I remember like eating at, um, fuck, I can't think it's the diner in Silver Lake and the, Front man for horn, four hundred blows was my waiter, and I at the, uh, like bright spot. Uh, no, the other one. Till, it's not Tilly's. It's got a woman's name. Oh, on sunset. Oh, yeah. Oh shit. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, God, it's been so it's been so long. But yeah, I know I know what you mean. But uh, I was mil- in that same mindset of like you can't you can't have a real job. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, yeah. And, and he was like, yeah, fuck it. I make a shit ton of money. And then I go do my thing. I was like, Oh fuck. I have the wrong fucking attitude. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you're like, wait, why? And that, and that just sort of, and that's from one artist to another, you know, it's, it's like thinking, assuming that like all comedians are making a ton of money and have like a secret, sitcom and development at all times you know what i mean like you're like well it's not on air but everybody's got one that's giving him at least uh you know 150 grand a year that will never be seen sort of thing and you're like oh wait everybody's kind of just struggling and that's why we always heard that everybody is a struggling actress or waiter or you know what i mean yeah you were were always like even before i heard your music which a friend of mine turned me on to sean anna and i was instantly a fan but you were kind of this legendary figure around Echo Park because I remember seeing you trolling, not trolling, driving around in a uh, very old school like convertible. <laughs> like you just had this whole oh weird, yeah. And it's like, <laughs> I sort of was aware of of you and who you were, but it was and there was maybe it's just my circle of people, but you were like this sort of legendary figure around Echo Park. Oh, weird. I don't, I don't know. I feel like that's kind of like the the comedy to music crossover thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> Where, you know, all musicians want to hang out with the comedians and vice versa. 
and we kind of maybe put each other on pedestals. And then when you get into the scene of each other's kind of worlds, you kind of realize everybody just thinks everybody's a dork. (laughs) 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 You're like, Oh yeah, we're all just dorks. And this is hilarious and awesome. Yeah. I've always been (laughs) awkward around musicians because I'm like, well, you're clearly cooler than me and you probably do way better with ladies than I do. Well, I don't know, but then it's the same thing. Musicians like get into the room with, the comedians and and you want to you want to step up with your jokes but you can you know you feel like you're you're never going to you're like this guy gets paid to do this what if what if what am i thinking we we, <laughs> we barely get paid to do it mostly. yeah exactly <laughs> especially <laughs> this guy gets two drink ticks tickets to do this i have to sing a song um <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, i don't know yeah i guess i don't it's it's pretty that is it's weird to think. I mean, it's it's kind of like the same. I feel like what you maybe felt about me around the scene was like when um, David Yao showed up in Silver Lake. Remember that summer when he moved to L.A.? Oh, yeah. And it, it was just like, whoa, did you see? I saw David Yao at Sunset Junction or, or like whatever. And and we were all kind of mystified like this, this you know, uh godfather of all things punk that we all wanted to be and front men and all this stuff was just sort of around. And then, um, you know, we'd see each other around and, and then, and then all of a sudden you just realize that you can talk to him and get his number. And then all of a sudden, you know, you have like a pot luck and he comes with like a Brussels sprout cheese casserole that's amazing and you're like holy shit this is just a regular dude who's amazing and like not yeah. like not the David Yao that's the wild man the wildest man you've ever seen jump off stage nude into a crowd of you know <laughs> of rockers in the 90s and you're like oh yeah shit people are just yeah, people I, I told him once that a friend of mine uh, was terrified by him and he legitimately seemed like his feelings were hurt and I didn't mean yeah. him just his yeah. stage persona freaked you know Todd from Sea Level Records was like yeah yeah totally he's like he scares me and I'm like <laughs> I don't, it was weird because I'm from Chicago and Yao was uh, you know obviously iconic in Chicago and like he was weirdly like a uh, a comedy like people were like I want to be on like that aggressive and committed uh, on stage as David oh, Yao totally yeah, it's then, it's admirable for sure. And that's why, yeah, people are just, yeah, I think it's the same thing where Todd was feeling afraid of him. Yeah, just seeing him backstage at a show or kind of having him in the audience at one of yours was like, how is this possible? This guy's got to be like practicing jumping off cliffs right now so he can survive <laughs> like his next tour. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, oh, no, he's just winging it and just like. That badass. That's awesome. And he was he was working because he was bartending a little bit at uh, at Cha Cha some for sure. Yeah, and that was like another lesson for me because I was like, oh, I guess you know we all got to work. <laughs> no, totally. Yeah, it's like I mean, I still avoid working just, and it's not for the principle of like a shame of it or anything. It's just just now it's like pure, like I don't even know what I would do. But I, I work my ass off in, in totally other ways, but I just make it work for myself more. And it's not the floundering, you know, uh, late 20s of it that I had when I was in L.A., which was just, you know, 
end up being like, well, I'll just hang out with all these super cool people doing blow all night. And that'll totally <laughs> boost my career. I'm sure <laughs> Yeah, that was... everybody wants to hire me to like ruin this other guy's career with him. Yeah. <laughs> it makes me, it's weird that there's so much in, in all showbiz industries, there's such an importance put on the 20 something like, and to me, it's like, if like we've both discussed this, like you don't really figure out what the fuck you're doing and become, have any experience to withdraw from until you're at least into your thirties and even more, it seems. Yeah. I feel like you have to lose it all at least once, if not two or three <laughs> times. You know what I mean? I'm laughing because I know exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's super relatable and it's, you know, you've never had like, you just never have that clear path of like a job and then a house and then a marriage and then all blah, blah, blah. Like you have, you have, um, you know, a weird, uh, manager that's like your age trying to woo you into some stuff that you both are figuring out together and then you both fail. And then like some, you know what I mean? Like there's just nothing is set in stone and everything's kind of like this weird race to get the same job that in the end you realize doesn't exist and you just sort of have to create on your own and you can't until you've figured out that none of that shit is real you know yeah <laughs> i feel like and maybe uh just ask i only mentioned myself to see if you relate it's like i as a young man i created out of a need to be liked and accepted like it was less about actually being creative and more like filling some fucking void in the center of my being (laughs) definitely definitely and and then like once i got rid of that garbage like it there's i it's not as uh angsty and like oh my god i gotta prove something i don't know if that is something yeah for sure yeah and i think you know and i think we both probably came out of like scenes in the in the nineties in the Midwest where there wasn't that much room for overlap, you know, I think like sub sub genres and subsects were really, really still very separate from each other. Even if you were like all indie rockers, like, like people who played noise did one thing and went in one place and had one label and people who did, you know, whatever else, like it, it just didn't cross over as much. And I feel like, as time went on, people let down their guards and were like, you know, I can like the Jesus Lizard and Bell and Sebastian and try to make records like both of those things and nobody's going to care. And I don't have to like carry the torch so hard to prove that I'm like, you know, holding it down for this scene or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's interesting because like my childhood was like, music was very much, you like this kind of music and then there was like, anything new wave or whatever people considered, you know, that shit on in my town. And yeah. it's, it's weird. Now it's like everybody likes everything. You just, you, it's, which I think is healthier for creativity and music. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, who, yeah, it's, it, it's weird if somebody's like, well, no, I only like, uh, you know, kraut rock. Like, <laughs> what do you, what is your life? Like, what do you, I mean, that's great. But what, what happens when you want to like, not, count all the time or what, you know what I mean? Like, if you're, can we just stop doing math for a second and feel an emotion? Like there's gotta be one country song you like because there's great songs everywhere, you know? And like, 
<laughs> uh, well, and growing up in Minnesota, were you in Minneapolis? Where were you exactly when you grew up? I, I grew up in a, a town called Owatonna, which is an hour south of Minneapolis. And I was there till I was about 15. And I started bands down there and stuff. We had this weird, um, awesome little insular scene um, where we were just far cut off enough from Minneapolis where we had to make our own kind of shows and, and, and bands and, and send one person up to the cities every week that had a license to like get us whippets and, and the record that just came out, you know, send them to the CD store or whatever. Um, so, so we had our own kind of little version of it and I kind of describe it like, like son of Rambo. It's like our, our scene was what we imagined a scene would be, you know? And, and so we were all like listening to the dead Kennedys and, and, playing in each other's garages and things. But, um, but we, you know, we, we just sort of made it on our own. And then when I was 15, I went to, uh, an art school for, for theater, um, that we lived in dorms and it was a public thing that you just auditioned to get into and you just paid for the, the food basically, uh, for the year. And you got to go live in these dorms in Minneapolis. So, or just on, on the outskirts in golden Valley. But I think from where I live right now in Minneapolis, it'd be about a, 20 minute bike ride from here to get there. But, um, it, it was amazing. You know, we had practice spaces and we could go to shows at first Avenue and just see how it was really done. And, and so, um, I was, I was kind of, you know, close enough at first. And then I was like kind of in the middle of it and, and really kind of like playing real shows pretty, pretty soon before, but way before I graduated high school and things like that. That uh, that high school sounds uh, crazy, like a public. It was school. awesome. Yeah, that's where I met Matt Cronk and Paul Christensen. We all went. We were all in the same grade. Um, um, those guys that eventually ended up becoming Qui in L.A. And um, yeah, there's a, a bunch of us. It was it was cool. It was like six art areas you could pick from. It's kind of theater, music, uh, dance, visual art. Um, literary art and media. And so, um, you know, I think each grade was only about 150 people when I got there. It was only for your junior and senior year. So uh, when we got up there, you know, Jessica Hopper was a senior um, and and uh, we became friends pretty fast. And uh, it was it was just a, a cool place, just like this little kind of jump off to the real world. But it kind of, I think, just ruined us all from the idea of college, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> by the time we got to college, like I went to the U of M for about a year and a half, but I refused to live in the dorms because I'd already done that. You know, I was like above that or whatever. <laughs> it's like a, a 17 year old. I was like, no way. I'm not living in the dorms with all these people who are learning to smoke weed and do acid and drink. Like we did that when I was 15. That's <laughs> like, that's, that's like, that's going to be hard to, to sit through again, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and so in a way, it was amazing. And then in, in, in other areas of just like, you know, kind of acclimating to other people, your age who were kind of doing those life experiences a couple of years later, I felt like a real, like snob, you know, <laughs> that's pretty crazy. You were playing first Avenue when you were a teenager. Is that, that's like pretty. And was that, was that in the, uh, I guess that 
club has never really had a down, but, but like, uh, replacements era or was that later? Well, I, it was, I was right after I never got to see who's who do or the replacements. Um, when I was in high school in the twin cities, I, that was like 1993 to 1995 kind of zone. So I saw a ton of amazing shows there and there's a little room next door in the venue called the seventh street entry that holds about 250 people. So that's where we would really kind of cut our teeth and, and, uh, um, you know, uh, every Sunday was an, an all ages night in the whole venue. So, um, we would open for, you know, trench mouth, uh, you know, Fred Armisen's yeah, band. I used to, um, my, yeah. Oh yeah. You're from Chicago. Duh. Yeah. <laughs> I, I never saw them, but my ex used to work with, uh, Fuck, I, one of the guys, I can't remember. I think the front man. Damon, Damon. Yes, La, yes. Yeah, yeah, Damon's amazing. I mean, yeah, the, the, they were our they were our idols. When we were in Calvin Crime, our first band, um, when I was in high school, um, Trenchmouth were just the be-all, end-all. Damon was the coolest front man we'd ever seen. Fred was already hilarious behind the drums, just like a just amazing drummer, but also... Uh, his stage banter was just fucking top notch. And we became kind of their little, their little buddy pet band that we would, we would open for them. And our, our first tour dates were with trench mouth for the most part, like going out in the Midwest and stuff and, and opening for them. And if I'd, you know, I was such an, a mega fan that I would be in the front row dancing the entire set. And if I stopped to go to the bathroom Fred would stop the song and make the whole audience wait till I get back. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, and they would just give us like, you know, they'd sit us down, you know, when we'd load into the venue and give us just like, just, you know, these amazing kind of bullshit, uh, uh, tips of the industry constantly. You could tell that they were just like excited to get our, you know, our young, fresh, super, super uh excited ears and then just like tell us the most made up rift like bullshit (laughs) (laughs) that they could while giving like real wisdom in there but for the most part it would just be like you know when it's snowing like this what your van is heavy so drive as fast as you can and no need to turn the wheel you know and just shit like that but then they'd be like yeah but also just buy a bag of bagels and you'll make it through the next day of tour and um you know you you don't have to go to a restaurant and check out motel six and you know stuff like that but um yeah they kind of they kind of showed us the ropes which is amazing and and uh so yeah, we were, we were out there doing it and signed to AMRAP and stuff by the time I was about 17 or 18. So yeah, we just, we, we, we were, I was, I've always been kind of an overachiever performer in that way. So I just sort of never, never stopped kind of relentless in that way. Uh, what was the, what brought you back to the Minneapolis area? I'm going to take a little break from the interview right now to thank you for listening and if you're enjoying what you're hearing and you want to be more of the community that is Conversations with Matt Dwyer, you can become a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash conversations with Dwyer. There's exclusive content on there. There's bonus episodes, raw files of the unedited uh, conversations, videos, photos, 
uh, there's all kinds of stuff. It's a great way. It's also a great way to support the show because uh, I, for a long time, was with a network. I am now independent. I'm doing this all on my own. Uh, so please, uh, it would help me greatly if you became a Patreon supporter. If you can't support that way, feel free to uh, rate and review the show on iTunes and tell your friends about it. That means a great deal to me. And for all things Conversations Matt Dwyer, you can go to themattdwyer.com and you could have links to merch and social media. And that way it's an easy jumping off point for any way you want to find out more about the show, find out, find out more about me or support the show. I thank you very much for listening, and now we go back to the interview. What brought you back to the Minneapolis area? Um, I I left LA. I basically left LA uh, to because I really like. I was keeping up with my house payments, but there was a point where I realized that I had made no progress on the loan after about seven years. It was just all interest that I paid, and I was like, "Oh fuck this." So I decided to just leave the house and go bankrupt. And at that point, I was like, I'm not getting another place in L.A. because it's just going to feel weird and empty and hollow um, for me right now. So I'm going to go to New York because I'm, you know, at that point, I was just in my early 30s. And I, I was like, I, I got to do this. If I'm going to live in New York at any point in my life, it's right now. So I might as well go do it for a year. And then I was going to become like a nomad and just sort of like live in a different city every year for, you know, like just as, as I roamed the country with only what can fit in my car. And then I ended up in New York and I it sort of got like, you know, um, through different friends ended up in just really good rent situation and it was really cheap. And I stayed in this place for about four years and I had a really good success with that album bye bye 17. And, and I just felt like I had my shit together. So I, I kept it going there. And then I realized I could buy a house really cheap in Minneapolis. And I was coming back here all the time to, to collaborate with, um, everybody in that band gangs, like, like the, the bony bear crew and, and Polisa and who became velvet Negroni and all these people. We, we just ended up recording together all the time. And, uh, I was like, man, even at that point, and this was even only like four years ago, I, I was like, you can buy a house for 125 grand, which is not possible anymore. So I kind of just slid in in this window where I bought a house for really cheap and was artistically doing a lot more here than I was anywhere else. And I just such a good community here. And, and I, I feel like, uh, everything kind of came together. I met my fiance and we, you know, we live together and have a dog and all this, all this shit just sort of came from growing up and, you know, and in the process, I kind of quit drinking cause I was just kind of blacking out and feeling not good about myself and, and not being like, uh, the example of a person that I hoped I would be, you know? So I, I, I kind of straightened my shit out and, and now just like, you know, try to like give back to the community. It's been a, it's been a wild, a wild few weeks here in Minneapolis. As I'm sure you've read about, um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, uh, it's good. It's good. It's, it's, it's an amazing place, but I think a lot of people don't realize that there is incredibly, uh, incredible, like racial disparity here. That's just sort of woven into the fabric just from the, the way the freeway system was built, you know, and the way, um, uh, 
you know, people are, are physically segregated and separated in, in different neighborhoods for, for at this point, what is no good reason. Um, and so, uh, you know, it just gives this weird white supremacist advantage to, to people that, um, I think people are just waking up to now. And I think it, it, even for myself, I hadn't really, you know, even had to think about that till a couple of years ago. And it's just like, once you do, it's this whole crazy, sad, fucking mind blowing, uh, veil being lifted. You know, it's, it's, it's wild. It, it, I went to, therapy for years about it after afterwards just because i was like what the fuck was i doing that i couldn't see that this is just like the most unfair situation for half the people that live here you know yeah it's i mean chicago is very much the same way especially with the freeways and one of the freeways i can't remember which one was like built literally so they could flood it if there was a race riot and so they could have a moat between different parts of the city which is just i mean shit i've never i've never heard it described like that but that is exactly what it is here too i mean that's fucking oh god that's the worst yeah there was like one one bridge that was like a kind of a main artery to from here to north minneapolis which is you know uh, a predominantly black neighborhood or, or classically was till recently um and yeah, it's it's the same thing. Like a tornado took out the bridge, and and they just didn't rebuild it for like five years. Jesus, you know, Christ. we're just like, what? What? Like this isn't just like this is this is a major throughway for people to just get to and from work or whatever, or just anywhere, or just to to a grocery store. Like Jesus Christ, have a little compassion here. Is the I've heard that the police departments in in both cities are pretty. I think at this point we could just admit that all police departments are. (laughs) Well, I think the thing that's really fucked up here is that um, when Jesse Ventura was our governor, he enacted a law that um, made it not necessary for the police force to actually live in, in, in the city. So most 90 some percent of our police force lives out in the suburbs, which are not, prized for their, uh, racial equity, you know? Um, and, and it's just like people kind of coming in as a tourist to, to police people and, and not really know the community or understand the people that they're supposed to be protecting, you know, they're protecting themselves from people who are not doing shit, you know, and, and for no reason. So it's fucked up. Yeah, it's. I mean, that's. It used to be cops were the working, more working class guys from your neighborhood. Not that that made them necessarily better. <laughs> yeah, because like yeah. I mean, Chicago was crooked cops in the forties, you know, forever. But at yeah. least there was an understanding of the neighborhood and the and the people. Where I think you're right. Living outside the city, it's just going to breed more ignorance and hostility to yeah. situations you can't understand. Or yeah, or just imagine like, you know, uh, like there's a mentally ill community member who seems like a threat from the outside. If you come in and you just stepped out of your car and he's approaching you or something. Um, but if you lived in the neighborhood, you could be like, oh, that's Charlie. You know, you just don't 
look at them in the left eye, you know what I mean? Like, or whatever, yeah. you know, you, you don't, don't make any sudden moves and he's not going to do it. You know, there, there's just like levels of understanding. This is like a bullshit like thing that I just made up. But, um, but you know, I feel like if somebody understood the community more or were around, you, you would have a little bit more understanding of how to deescalate things. And, and, uh, you know, you just don't need billions of dollars going to, cops when really you know they probably had 10 months or less of training and you're expecting them to do like the work of like social services that take like four years to get their training or you know what i mean <laughs> like yeah. people who actually know what they're treating and 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 most of the time it's just like really like give most of these people a home and and there's not nearly uh you know half the people you're fucking with all the time aren't out there to be fucked with you know there's just so many different ways to like kind of help people who are obviously you know it's just a whole systemic thing you know especially like just how the fact that it's it's a lot of like people that are homeless because they've been prescribed opioids and then you know are now on the street doing heroin because they can't find a replacement for their health insurance. And you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's like, it's, it's just so, so fucked up, but I'm, I'm really proud of how Minneapolis has stepped up and it's, it's been great to be here and kind of like everybody figuring out their lane and their way to like make their voice heard or at least their impact. Um, you know, for me, I was at a bunch of the protests, but I figured my strong suit was kind of raising awareness and finding, you know, different donation drop-off sites and, and collecting money from people and, and going and, and making runs and, and dropping off things and helping, like, organize, you know, food drives and diaper drives and shit like that, that, that you just, like... For me, I just needed my brain to constantly be engaged so that I wouldn't fall into some, like, despair and just sit around on the internet and share my white boy views that nobody needs right now. You know, it's like, I just need to like, I need, I need to like help amplify, you know, black voices that need to be heard and help people get food because, you know, an entire section like of the city, like half of Minneapolis is a food desert now because all the grocery stores are burned down. And I'm not even like disparaging that because it's fully understandable that, riots and looting happen because nobody listened to any other form of protest, you know, it's like, well, we'll just rebuild that shit. But for now we got to like take care of our people. And the fact that we're like really looking like we're going to be a model city of defunding the police is kind of fucking wild and amazing and kind of let's go for me, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I hope that has an impact because all our dickhead Garcetti did was, you know, he just gave 45% of the budget after this all started, 45% of the budget is going to police. And it's like, go fuck yourself. That's like, yeah, that is the only way I can articulate my feelings about that is fuck. Off. Yeah. 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 He's definitely not uh, won a lot of fans. <laughs> <laughs> Overall though, uh, being back in Minneapolis, is that cause I, I moved outside of LA and I felt like that was like just the, uh, pressure, uh, it just, I felt better as soon as I got. Oh yeah. And oh yeah. And yeah. Yeah. To get back to that. I mean, it's, it's, it's so nice because yeah, Minneapolis definitely has a, a great art scene and, and it is like, a, you know, we, 
you can live making art here. And, uh, you know, the fact that I have a cheaper house, less pressure, I tour just as much, if not more, you know, I'm just as kind of like out there doing everything that I was, but with actually kind of more freedom and more of a budget. And I have a bigger band, you know, there's like seven of us now. I it was a four piece forever when I lived in New York and kind of got to ditch a lot of the tracks and, and add live horns. And, you know, I, I actually be, am able to employ more musicians and we can all kind of like, uh, you know, kind of step out from, from the, the office, you know, and, and, uh, and, and hit the road and actually, do what we set out to do when we all like, you know, had our hopes and dreams as 20 year olds, you know, it's, it's pretty cool. Um, so I'm, I'm very happy being here and, and I'm, you know, I feel really fortunate to be here for the pandemic and everything, just like not kind of being, you know, scrunched up in a building. I feel really like awful for everybody who got exposed in like New York and LA and other big cities just for being there, you know, and with no place to kind of hide. And, um, it's, I just feel like my timing for what I needed to do was great and, and, uh, like super fortunate. And so anyway, I can help anybody else that, that like has not had that, that kind of luck. I, I try to do, you know, that's great. Do you have a, and do you have a new album coming out? I saw a single. Um, oh, so I'm no. Assuming. Well, we did, we did, uh, I have this, this project called heart bones. Um, that's, uh, uh, myself and, uh, Sabrina Ellis, the singer of a giant dog and sweet spirit from Austin, Texas. We have a, a, a duo called heart bones. That's, you know, it's a full band when we tour and when we make records and stuff, but, um, Sabrina and I kind of sit down and write the songs like duet style. Um, so we put out that album in February and just started touring and we got a couple weeks of it done and had to come home early uh, because of the COVID stuff. But, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll resume that and hopefully February next year, if that is acceptable, (laughs) (laughs) who knows? We, we, that's, that's the plan for now, but nothing will surprise me. I've going into this, I kind of assumed that it would be 18 months, you know, so I don't, I don't really know just, just so my, my own personal expectations wouldn't, wouldn't depress me further. (laughs) <laughs> you know, so we'll see. So we're doing that and I'm working on a new Harmer album, but I honestly, I was, when the pandemic was in full swing, I wanted to follow up my last album, best summer ever with worst summer ever. Cause I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> um, because it was gearing up to be the worst summer ever, but, but now I'm honestly much more hopeful with all this, like the world kind of flipping, on itself, uh, politically and with the whole like structure of race kind of being the forefront right now, I don't think it's going to be the worst summer ever. I think it's going to be one that I I remember fondly for the, the amount of positive change that happened, you know? Yeah. So it's, and I don't think it would have happened without the pandemic. Like people just wouldn't have had the time to turn inward or take to the streets or really just like put in the self work to learn and and see what the fuck we've all been hiding from ourselves for so long. You know, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of wild how everything worked hand in hand to reveal like this thing that's been there all along, you know? Yeah. 
even <laughs> uh, even I look at my own life and I'm just like, oh, you fucking asshole. Like that's yeah, uh, yeah. I, and it's I, painful I mean, to admit, but it's like we have to. Uh, we yeah. we all have to. And I I don't really know anybody who no, hasn't. It's, it's it's really like yeah, exactly. I mean, it's on white people to do the work right now. It's like you know, I think forever. And, and, and without malice or without like meaning anything awful by it, like, you know, I think people put the work on black people and would ask like, what can we do and uh, how can we help? And, and I think that it, it was just like unwittingly condescending and awful and, and just like probably a helpless feeling because, you know, it's, it's our work to do and you can't, you know, uh, unless like the kind of whole society as a whole kind of realizes it at once you, you can't just you can't pull the veil back yourself you know it's it's it's, it's crazy and, and it's, we're just like we're just taught that's alternative history that's that's just accepted and i feel like people are finally myself included just being like what the fuck what was i what was i doing this whole time what why why didn't i question anything or or just see what was right in front of my eyes you know yeah uh so <laughs> yeah i know it's a, it's a heavy but it's impossible to not talk about it. i feel like it's like my duty to at least bring that up a yeah bit, absolutely know? no and that's I, I, I mean after i asked you i was like oh yeah and he's from minneapolis so this is yeah. well well-timed yeah. I mean, just like the, yeah, the white, like white fragility thing. I think starting with that book, even though it's written by a white woman, it's like, it's, it is really important to, to have that be like the solid base of like deconstructing yourself and then empowering yourself with like black literature after that and how to be an anti-racist and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, yeah, cause it, it is painful and it's hard to, to admit to yourself that you have these advantages as a white person, you know? And, and it's just like our time to kind of, it's our time to act out and, and shut down the all lives matters people and, and, and kind of show why that's not a thing, you know, and why that's, yeah. that's, that is not the important discussion right now. And I, I heard somebody sum it up really well in a couple different ways, but I think my favorite one is, uh, to explain to somebody why they shouldn't say all lives matter is like, um, them, piping up during, during uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech to tell about their dream as well. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I had a dream as well. <laughs> That's fucking perfect. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. You had a dream. I had a dream, too. But, <laughs> or yeah, yeah, the obvious, like, you know, showing up to a to a breast cancer awareness, uh, March with your all cancers matter sign, you know, <laughs> but yeah, uh, there's so much to learn and so many people. And it's, it's kind of nuts that it's like, even just all of us that are like the people who thought we were woke doing all this work. And then there's going to be a lot of work, you know, kind of trying to, trying to convey that to the, the, the Trump kind of masses as well. And the, the secret agents and the fucking white supremacy, the actual white nationalists and shit that are making everything so much fucking harder. It's, it's wild. It's just, it's yeah. insane. Hopefully after the abolished police, we could follow that up with the FBI. Cause they don't have the best fucking history either. 
Yeah, there's a lot of that. And there's a lot of like restructuring schools and, you know, we need more black teachers and we need more, uh, we need new history books for sure. And, you know, there's, there's not a, there's not the happy ending post Lincoln that we're led to taught to believe, you know? Yeah. And Lincoln was, (laughs) that was, I interviewed an indigenous artist a few months ago and he, in, uh, in my research for him, I had learned this thing about how Lincoln ordered uh, 500 indigenous people to be hung right around Oof. the emancipation. So it's like his his fucking uh, record is pretty shitty, too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, there's it's 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 yeah, there's there's so much that we don't know. You know, it's just struck from the record. So, yeah, I'm kind of I'm, I'm kind of uh, excited to learn, but I know it's going to be horrifying as well. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's a lot, you know, I, I, I am definitely no expert on any of these subjects and that's uh daunting and, you know, and it's also necessary to, to dig in at this point, I guess. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you very much for your time. Oh yeah, man. Uh, this was great. Thank you. I, I didn't know where we would go. <laughs> yeah. Um, is there anything where can people that you need to plug or where people can find all your um, fantastic work or what should they well, do? Well, thanks. I would check out, um, the Heartbones record. It's called hot dish and our website is heartbones number two, just heartbones com. Uh, and you know, I've got, you know, little pieces of, of, uh, of things coming together for, for harm our superstars next album, but I'm not sure what that's actually when that'll be. I have a few songs floating around. Um, and I also started this thing called coloring books for a cause, uh, when the pandemic started to, uh, kind of help out local service industry and, 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 uh, charities in need, uh, through coloring books. So if you want to check out that coloring books for a cause.com, there's two that benefit first Avenue. There's, uh, one that benefits a bar that I'm a part owner in, in Moorhead, Minnesota called Harold's on Maine. And there's one for, uh, these bars, grumpies and Palmer's in Minneapolis for their staff funds. And then another one for violence free Minnesota. So, um, yeah, we just kind of, those were born out of necessity before I had food drives and diaper drives to, to attend to every day. I was, um, uh, rounding up local artists to make coloring books to benefit these charities and they've, they've all gone really well. So I'm pretty psyched about those too. That's awesome. And I'll put all links into the show notes so people have easy. Oh, hell yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah, it's good to talk to you. Yeah. Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. As a quick reminder, please rate and review the show on iTunes. Tell your friends about it. And if you like, become a Patreon supporter, thematdwyer.com. Also, listen to my friend's podcast, uh, Kilgallen's Pub with Joe Kilgallen and Hunk with Mike Bridenstine. Two great podcasts, thematdwyer.com. And thank you very much for listening.